On this edition of Good Morning Hamilton's podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today, we are talking about parents vaccinating their kids. What percent are excited about that? There is a new Angus Reid poll out that will give the answer, we think. We're talking about aging and concerns so many people, 55 years old and older, concerned about retirement. If they can retire at all, we will talk about why that is. There are tent encampments around the city of Hamilton. You know this. You probably also know that discussions and delegations have been heard at City Hall on this, but there is now a case in front of the courts about whether Hamilton should be allowed to enforce its bylaw or whether those living in those tents should be allowed to stay on public property. We'll talk about that. St. Joseph's Hospital now has the first antibody therapy clinic in Ontario to try and prevent people who have COVID from getting it much, much worse. We'll explain what that therapy is about. Squid Games. Heard about Squid Games? If you haven't, well, stick around. You'll find out what it is and why some parents and teachers are concerned. And who is the greatest fictional detective of all time? A list has been compiled. We will hash it out right here. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The homeless encampment story. This is uh, this has gone in front of city council, people arguing for and against. It's also now in court. An injunction is being sought or a fight against an injunction either way about whether or not people who are living in tents on public land should be permitted to stay there, homeless people, transient people, indigenous, whatever, indigent people, indigent people, I'll get the right word, um, or whether or not the city should be allowed to clear them out. Wade Pazemka is a lawyer. Uh, He is, let me get the right title here, with Ross and McBride, co-counsel for Hamsmart and Keeping Six. He joins us now. Wade, how are you this morning? Hi, Scott. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I'm thinking as this has now reached the point where it's in the courts, this has also reach the point where it's going to be one way or the other. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of common ground to be found in the middle now of this. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I don't think that's the way it should be. Uh, court court should always be the last resort for for anybody. Um, and, you know, we have a common problem facing Hamilton, uh, all Hamiltonians, including those who are experiencing homelessness, and uh, we should be working together and not wasting taxpayer dollars in court. All right, let, let's go through the two options, the two alternatives here, because I'm assuming there are two. There may be a third one that I'm not thinking of, but... If those who are fighting for the people in the encampments to have the right to stay there, if they win in court, what happens? Well, that would be up to the judge. I mean, there could be a creative solution that, you know, there's some restrictions on what that might look like. Um, just to be fair, though, Scott, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, it is the right to be fighting to stay in encampments. I think it's recognizing that there's no other choice for some individuals. There's not enough shelter spaces in the city of Hamilton. The cities uh, recognize this themselves. So it's people who have nowhere else to go. Do they have the right to erect shelter on public spaces where they exist? And, you know, the, the, the solution for everybody is ultimately to eliminate encampments. Nobody wants encampments. So the, the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic and their clients aren't fighting to say we need to have permanent encampments in the city of Hamilton. They're fighting to say that there's no other option. So why don't we work cooperatively together to house people? Um, but until that time, let them protect themselves from the elements. To that point then, and I'll get back to what happens if the city were to win this, there have been some suggestions made about the idea, not officially, I don't think, but what could the city designate then? If there are not the spaces for all these people, could the city, rather than saying you can encamp anywhere you wish on public land, could the city designate a spot, a field or somewhere else and say, okay, you can be here, but just not everywhere? Yeah, I think that's definitely what you can see. And 
what's really you know concerning about this, Scott, is you hear some councillors talking about how Hamilton's unique and how we're the only city who's behaving this way. It's not true. Look at the city of London. So they've used um, construction trailers that are heated to house people uh, temporarily. I want to just, this is important because, you know, when we're looking at this issue and people are trying to kind of understand the issue, you got to cut through the misinformation and you got to see what's really happening there. And there's a lot of misinformation around this. And it's the most concerning part of it. So going back to London for a second, you look at what their director of housing and stability said just this summer. We allow folks to have three tents or less in an area, making sure they're not near sidewalks or pathways that might cause health and safety challenges. So you have the city of London allowing it, putting restrictions on like the protocol that the city of Hamilton had that we had negotiated last summer. Um, And they're working on solutions, recognizing that there's an issue of people experiencing homelessness. They're not spreading misinformation and trying to clear people out of these public spaces when they have nowhere else to go. So that's all I'm calling for. No one here is looking for Hamilton to turn into San Francisco. We're, Mm. you know, trying to recognize that there's a difficult problem and work together. And what I can't understand, Scott, and, you know, you've, you've been around the game longer than I have is, why some of these councillors aren't prepared to work cooperatively, why this is an all-or-nothing proposition. And that, that I can't wrap my, my mind around. In the meantime, as this is going on, uh, let us say that the court were to uh, you know, th- rule for those who are in the encampments. Um, what about, we've, we've heard in the news here all morning, uh, clips from people who spoke at council, uh, homeowners and such who say that, you know, the area around their homes, because of the people in the encampments, that they are saying they're scared. They've seen drugs use, they've seen violence, they've seen stuff going on. Is there a, is there a compassion for the people who are homeowners or are they secondary in this? No, no. I, I think there's a, listen, I understand those arguments. I don't think anyone's um, suggesting that, you know, there's not, there's not a concern for, for some residents in areas. And, you know, the symptoms of poverty can, can be challenging. So uh, I'm not suggesting they're secondary. I don't think anybody is. You know, I, what I'm suggesting, and I think some of those residents who appeared before the planning committee yesterday also recognized, is that the city needs to be doing more here. We need to be addressing the root causes, not turning those residents against people who have nowhere else to go. So that's the real issue. But, yeah, no, nobody's attacking those people or suggesting they're, they're out of line. I think what we all need to do is recognize that there are issues in encampments and we can work together to, to find a creative solution. The other option, we started by saying what happens if, when this is in court, what if the city wins, what do you expect then happens? I, you know, I, it's tough to say. I don't think that they're going to do what we're seeing other municipalities do. So I think they're going to clear people out of encampments. And uh, again, there's not enough shelter spaces. The city recognizes that. And so what's the solution? I mean, it's easy to do that, Scott, to pander for votes, but what do you do with the people who don't have anywhere to go? Like, I mean, I wish the city would think a little bit bigger and be responsible here um, in this situation because, again, we're not nobody on, on this side of the fence is fighting to keep um, encampments forever. We're looking at solutions. It is, uh, it is absolutely a difficult one for sure, and one that uh, a lot of people have a lot of opinions on, including our poll question today. By the way, Wade Pauziemka, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Scott. Our poll question this morning is on this issue. Go to Twitter. Do you support the city's moves to clear tent encampments, or do you support the homeless residents fighting for the ability to sleep in tents on public land? 
Go to Twitter, cast your vote. We would love to hear from you. Uh, right now, the remove side, 71.4%. Let them stay, 286 Have your say. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have been talking for weeks and months and, well, not years, well, maybe years, a year anyway, about vaccines. But all the talk for vaccines so far, most of it anyway, has been about us, has been about adults, has been about getting adults vaccinated. But what happens when it comes time for Health Canada, that Health Canada says, you know what, let's get our kids vaccinated. What then? Because I got to believe there are going to be some parents who were totally thrilled with the idea of getting themselves needled up, but may have some doubts or some skepticism about their kids. Well, good news, there is some polling that has been done about this to give us some idea where people stand. Dave Korzynski is with Angus Reid. They have done this polling and he joins us now. Dave, how are you this morning? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you because, as I say, this one seems to me to be uh, throwing us into some murky gray area because people, I think, are fine to do things on themselves or at least take some amount of risk, but it becomes a different story when it's your kids. So are we seeing parents, as a rule across the country, all being eager to get their kids done? Well, uh, no, we're seeing quite a split, actually. And, it, you know, it's interesting. It it doesn't look quite as... as uh you know, hesitant as when we started asking about adults uh, in the early early phases of vaccination. But there's a lot of people who are, are I would say, unwilling to commit at this point. And, and we certainly saw that with adults. It took a while to get going when, when people kind of wanted to sit on the sidelines a little and watch, you know, maybe some people that they know get the vaccine and, and hear about their experiences first. Um, and what we're seeing among parents, we've got more than 800 parents of 5 to 11-year-old children. That's the population that will be targeted uh, in the next phase, it sounds like. And 51% of these parents say that they would get their child vaccinated right away. They don't really have much hesitation. Um, they think that it's a, it's a good thing to do and will help us to end the pandemic. 18% say that they would get their child vaccinated, but they would wait a while first. They They would you know, let a few people go first and kind of just just see how it goes before they make that decision. And then you've got 32% of people who are, are not willing to commit to vaccinate their children. Um, a big group of them, 23%, say that they wouldn't get them vaccinated. And then that 9% say they're not sure. So you've got uh, quite a split population. Um, and overall, 51% say they're ready to go. So there, there certainly would be a big push if... Um, that age group is is eventually uh, approved, but a lot of people who are waiting to see or are, are pushing back and saying, no, they don't think that they're going to do it. So when you were doing this and you start to get the numbers, what was the, what was the, what was the thing to you that m- impressed you or didn't impress you? What was the number, the 50% yes or the 30% no? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think the yes is, is the most important one. And what we've seen from the polling is that the, the yes group will grow over time, um, and it's it's just a, a situation where a lot of people are hesitant with the unknown. Um, we actually, when we started doing the adult polling, we had 40% who said that they would get the vaccine right away, and another 40% who said that they they were in that group who said yes, but they wanted to wait. And that group really did diminish. You could see the lines, uh, you know, one going down, one going up, and that group transferring from the hesitant over to you know, I'm willing to get it done or I've had it done. And I think that 
as the the operation rolls out, people do see that it's safe and they see that uh, you know the side effects are minimal. And despite a lot of the um, very very loud minority that I think that you see on social media and and a lot of times on the news uh, at rallies and that type of thing. You know, the, the the vast majority of Canadians see that this is safe and are really on board with it. So I think that that group would, will grow. Um, and when you're looking at the population, you know, 51% is, is plenty to get going. So if, if they do get approval from Health Canada for this, this age group, uh, I think a lot of people will be ready to go and, and the, the operation will roll out uh, quite smoothly again. The one thing, though, Dave, that really catch, sort of makes me wonder about whether that will happen is, and it's a good thing, but we haven't seen that many serious cases of COVID in kids 5 to 11. I'm not saying there haven't been any, mm-hmm. but it's, a, it's still pretty much a rarity. And I wonder how many parents are saying, well, do I really need to take a chance or even do this if we're not, I mean, my kid is not 80. My kid is not someone who's got compromised health. We're not seeing kids needing this stuff right now. Yeah, and I think that one of the the biggest elements of communication on that front for for public health officials to and for people in the education world to to really bring about is um, the minimizing the risk and kind of the shielding aspect of it. Because, like, you're, you're correct, you're you're not trying to vaccinate your child because you think that they're going to necessarily be hospitalized. What you're trying to do is really minimize the risk of spread and the risk of, you know, giving it to somebody who is in that 70 plus age group who might even be fully vaccinated, but is still being careful and is at risk. And the big thing is that if you, if you've got a, a, a large population, you've got hundreds of thousands of, of, kids of this age group, if you can minimize the risk even slightly uh, in terms of the spread and in terms of the risk to others, I think that's what health officials would, would really want to focus on rather than, like you say, the, the risk of serious illness, which is is very, very minimal for that age group. So it's more of a, um, you know, doing it for, for other people and the community aspect that we've seen in parts of the rollout, but uh, might be obscured a little bit by just looking at the individual risk. So that's going to be a challenge mm. for, for health officials with that that other 50% who don't want it right away. I, I think maybe the biggest shock to me when I looked at your numbers, Saskatchewan and Alberta are among the highest hesitancy for getting your kids vaccinated. And I think some people would say, well, of course, that's, you know, that's, that's the West. But it was not them that was the highest province as far as hesitancy. It was Quebec, which I kind of didn't expect, but w- should I have guessed that? Yeah, it's interesting if you look at Quebec's overall vaccination rate, they're very high uh, compared to, um, you know, if you if you look at um, Quebec compared to Alberta or, or Saskatchewan or Manitoba, um, they're they're well ahead in terms of the overall adult vaccination rate, but they're right there with them in terms of hesitation about that population, that 5 to 11 group. So I think that really does speak to the fact that there is um, there is some hesitancy and there are some questions about whether or not this group really needs to be vaccinated uh, that need to be answered by public health officials because you've you've got that those more skeptical historically groups in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba really pushing back a little bit and saying no we don't think it's necessary and you would expect that but you you don't expect to see it as much in Quebec so I think that's a real um, indicator of the fact that not everybody thinks that this is necessary. So Mm. I think you have to hear what is the data? What are we trying to accomplish with the five to 11 group? Is there a number that we need to hit and, and what is it 
that as a society we really want to get to. And I think that a lot of people, you know, and rightfully so in a lot of cases, just, just have questions about what the ultimate goal is. And I think that really laying that out would be the best path forward for, you know, Theresa Tam at the federal level and then all the provincial uh, health authorities um, going forward with this. Dave Korzynski from Angus Reid, very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem, anytime. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have been looking all across the world for the last 19, 20 months, whatever it is now, for ways to better deal with COVID. I mean, the best way, of course, is not to get it, and so hence vaccines and all the rest. But what if you do get it? How is there a way? How do we keep you from getting it really badly? Now, some of these things, you know, there are pre-existing conditions. We hear that people whose health is already compromised by something. We've heard that. But are is there a way? Are there ways potentially to help you not have a case of COVID explode into something massively serious? Scott Radley in for Rick Zamperin, by the way, this morning. Uh, St. Joseph's Hospital has come up with an idea, is running an antibody therapy clinic for COVID. I want to bring in Dr. Zane Chagley. He's an infectious disease specialist with St. Joe's. He's associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine with McMaster University. He joins us now. Doctor, thank you for your time this morning. Hi, good morning. So how do we know, first of all, and this may be a very basic, very stupid question, I don't know, but how do we know when someone who has COVID, when someone tests positive, how do we know when they are likely to be able to ride this out without a great deal of problem? And how do we know when it's going to turn into something horrible for them? Is there a way to know? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, and you know, prognosticating people is, is difficult. I mean, prior to vaccines, the biggest risk factor for having a bad outcome was age more than anything else. And, and it's profound 80 70 60 50 even 40 to 50 is is still kind of higher than things like diabetes high blood pressure uh in terms of risks of ending up in in hospital or icu um but yeah after that i mean we, we see people that have very mild symptoms that unfortunately day three develop really severe symptoms and end up in hospital and then we see people with very mild symptoms who then go on to have their disease resolved so it's very unclear in terms of the actual patient, but certainly their profile helps us kind of stratify, okay, is this someone at high risk or low risk of hospitalization? Not zero risk, but, but you know, to get a sense of what their, their trajectory is. So it's not just a case where, let's say I get it, I test positive, I'm not feeling very well, mm-hmm. and I get a test, but it's not really that bad. That doesn't indicate that it's not going to become worse. No, no, absolutely. And, okay. and, and a lot of the people that are in our ICUs, you know, had minor symptoms for a few days and then they just progressed and progressed and progressed and progressed. And so, yeah, absolutely. They're, you're, you're, how you're feeling on day one doesn't necessarily predict how you're going to end up on day 10, which is, you know, again, more the impetus around some of the stuff we've been doing. Okay. So I, I show up at the hospital then and I say, I, I, I've got a test. I'm not feeling great. I do a test and you decide that I may be a candidate for this antibody therapy clinic. Mm. Explain what the, what, what is this doing? What What is the therapy doing to help me not get worse? So, you know, our, our normal response to most viral infections is to generate antibodies and antibodies are proteins in our blood that stick to the virus that trigger our immune system to clear the virus that you know prevent the virus from getting into our cells Uh, when we're vaccinated we make a really high number of antibodies and that helps us a prevent getting COVID-19 but b you know even if we do have a breakthrough case end up getting fairly minimal symptoms 
Um, but for people who don't have antibodies uh, and get COVID-19, that, that journey to get antibodies, unfortunately, may not be enough time to prevent some of those complications. So all we're doing here is using some licensed drugs, essentially, that are based on human antibodies that are made in the lab, synthetic antibodies, uh, and then infusing them into people during their COVID-19 to give them a shot to essentially clear the virus a lot faster than they would uh, had they just relied on their immune system alone. So this sounds like a therapy then that for the for a person who has normally who normally produces normal amounts of antibodies, this sounds like a therapy that wouldn't necessarily do all that much, but it's for someone who wouldn't be producing antibodies at the right level. Yes, I mean, like it, it, even in a normal person to get kind of peak antibody levels after being infected, it takes about a week, and so you know, again, if we can cut that off for high-risk people and, and give them uh, a bit of that boost earlier, it kind of helps with preventing some of those complications. COVID is interesting, as, as many other viral infections, the first week or so is really the virus doing most of its damage and your body trying to clear it. The people that end up in hospital aren't necessarily all because of the virus. It's often because of the inflammation from their immune system that leads to, you know, collateral damage, which leads them to end up in hospital. And, and many of the therapies we give in hospital are really to suppress the immune system rather than treat the virus. So, again, giving people antibodies early helps prevent that progression and gives the body a fair chance to kind of clear it out as fast as possible. So for people like you who really understand this stuff intimately, does this seem like a logical, very obvious solution then that was, well, of course, we give antibodies and this is going to work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do this for other infectious diseases. You know, if you get uh, bitten by a rabid uh, raccoon in, in Hamilton, you know, you're going to go to the emergency room. Well, the first thing they're going to do to you is actually give you antibodies to rabies that are from other humans in order to prevent the complications of rabies because we don't have any particular treatments for rabies in that sense. And in that context, it's nearly 100% protective against kind of the, the complications from rabies, but people who don't get that antibody therapy, it's nearly 100% fatal in them. So, uh, you know, again, we have a huge precedent for this in the past. Um, you know, these drugs came along the pipeline along with vaccines, and there are still groups, obviously, that are vaccinated that don't have their own native antibodies and groups that can't make antibodies even to vaccines because of their immune suppression where this is a, a nice shortcut to help at least prevent some of the major complications from COVID-19. Okay, and what you explain, like even to me, who, who obviously is not a doctor, but I mean, it, it makes all kinds of logical sense. And again, to mm-hmm. you, this seems very obvious. If that's the case, and you use the example of rabies, why is St. Joe's the first hospital in Ontario to do this? If this is obvious, why isn't everybody doing it? Yeah, so these drugs, uh, you know, took some time to get approved. They were procured by Canada kind of in the late, uh, spring, early summer, and, you know, it, it still involves a lot of work, right? We have to identify patients, and the patients we're looking for are unvaccinated patients over the age of 50 or unvaccinated patients under the age of 50 with medical conditions like heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, kidney disease, obesity, diabetes, or who have cancer or on immunosuppression because we know they're at the highest risk of hospitalization, or vaccinated people who don't have great immune systems where we essentially treat them as unvaccinated in that sense. Um, you know, so you have to find those people. You have to identify them early. You have to bring them into a setting. And, and you know, healthcare is is stretched these days. New innovative projects, even though they may have significant benefits, are, are hard to set up. Um, but you have to bring them into a space. You have to infuse the drug and have the pharmacy support available for it. 
Uh, and, you know, you have to give the education around it. So th- this is the first one. It's not going to be the last one. There are many across the province that are in their infancy trying to figure out how to deal with their regions. Um, but, you know, once we saw that this was a viable option and, and you know, at, at, uh, at the expense of making sure that our health care is protected through the wintertime, I think it was a, a no-brainer that we pushed this forward and, and uh, started to administer these doses as they're recommended by the World Health Organization and the Ontario Science Table. Good news for people in Hamilton if you uh, if you are in this position. Good that it's here. Um, Dr. Zane Chagler, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. All the best. It is, uh, again, that's it's a really, uh, it's, if you live in this area and you happen to be one of those people, as described, who happens to get COVID, boy, thankfully uh, it's here and seemingly works well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Squid Games, um... If you don't know what it is, and I don't think I'm having any spoilers here, I think I'm safe. It's a Korean show, it's on Netflix, that basically tells the tale of a few hundred people who are in financial distress, that are deep in debt, and so they get brought into this game, quote, quote, game, in which they can try and win money that would get them out of their financial problems, or the alternative is they die. But they don't just die. And this is where this story is causing some concern for some parents and some educators. Uh, They don't just die. They don't, you know, sort of just fall down. This is not old 1950s TV where a cowboy shoots someone and they just fall down. No, 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 no. This is, this is, this makes the opening beach salvo on Saving Private Ryan look like a family bit of fare. This is violent Violent, violent. This is extreme, and some people are very concerned. Tony Volk is a Brock University professor in the Department of Child and Youth Studies. He's an associate member in the Department of Psychology at the university. He joins us now. Tony, thank you for this today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So the concern, I suppose, uh, is twofold here. One, that kids are watching this at all because it is clearly not designed for children. But let's get back to that one in a second. The other part that I think is more pressing that more educators are worried about right now is the idea of imitation. Now, no one is saying that kids on schoolyards are pulling out guns and shooting each other in the head. But there are reports in Australia and England and probably other places that kids are imitating the games. And even if there's no guns, there's kicking or punching or other forms of violence. Is this a, should this have been something we reasonably could have guessed would have happened? Yeah, I think so. Um, There's a, a long history of studying how children respond to violent television, movies, games, et cetera. Um, And the data is pretty clear that the effects aren't huge. So if you, watch one of these things as you said you're not going at killing people um but especially the younger the child is the more likely they are to imitate what they see on tv in one form or another and is there any is there any difficulty in understanding why that might be i mean kids are more literal than adults right so you see something and it probably makes sense to try and do that yeah absolutely and and they don't always get the nuance behind the show uh you know as adults hopefully you take away the message of the irony um, and cruelty uh, of forcing people to go through this, which is, I think, what the creators were intending with that kind of shocking violence, was to you know, shock the viewer into discouraging the violence. A young child might miss that kind of subtlety. 
and instead just take the violence for being glorified um, as part of the game. Right, and, and look, I'm not I'm not saying that people, that adults should not watch this. That is, that's people's choice, and obviously lots and lots and lots are. It's the most streamed show ever on Netflix. Um, but one of the other things that a lot of the parents and educators are asking and administrators are asking is, well, this is a show that is clearly meant for adults. It's marked as mature audience. How has it caught on so quickly with school-age kids? And, and I think that's a fair question. How, how have so many kids seen this already? Yeah, I, I agree again on both points that, you know, we have to allow content for adults, and we have for a long time. Uh, if you think of this is the season of Halloween horror movies. Uh, but at the same time, we regulate whether or not kids are able to see those kinds of movies in movie theaters. And really, it's up to adults who, um, especially during the pandemic and this, you know, after a year in, are letting kids have a lot of time online. They still have to regulate uh, what their children, especially their younger children, um, are watching and being exposed to. And I got to say, like, I'm not going to throw every parent under the bus here because I got to think that that's a difficult thing when you, it's no longer a case of just what you're seeing on the TV. The kid goes in his room and he's got his smartphone while well, there's Netflix on that or his gaming system or there's, you know, you can see it on there. Like it's, you almost have to be either shutting down everything or watching them all the time to make sure they don't see this stuff. Yeah, again, another great point. And I think the best way of getting around that is to have a good and honest communication with your kids. Um, so sometimes out of the blue, uh, I've got a, a daughter in university and two sons who are, uh, in elementary school. And sometimes the younger sons will say they saw something funny on YouTube. And then you realize, wait a minute, that might not have been appropriate for you to see at which point you can have a discussion about maybe they shouldn't watch that. Maybe they shouldn't see that because unless you're standing over the shoulder or reviewing what they do 24 seven, you can't stay on top of everything. So I think you need to have open general conversations about what's okay to watch um, and not watch. Let's talk for a second here about whether the, whether this concern is warranted, though. And, I, and I'm trying to think back. The last time that we talked on this show or on my show about a, a, an issue, a show like this, was I think it was 13 Reasons Why, and there were those who were concerned that this might lead some kids to see suicide as a possible option to get attention. I mean, you're, you're clearly not talking about every kid, but those who might already be susceptible or leaning that way. Was there any evidence that we found in the wake of 13 Reasons Why to suggest it did cause more suicides or did cause more problems? There, the evidence wasn't that there was strong differences uh, or strong outcomes from that. Uh, again, uh, you know, a television show on its own doesn't likely have a huge influence, so I don't think this is a giant panic. But we do know that suicides in particular are something that uh, happen with copycats um, and copycat incidents. So the day after a national suicide, for example, one of the more... Uh, impressive statistics in a bad way is that there are more airplane crashes Um, and the thinking is and more car crashes that people who have even adults uh, leanings already in those kind of directions are influenced by what they see around us we're a social species and so we are influenced by what we see around us yeah we got to run but if you i don't know if you have kids of a young enough age to be concerned about this but would this be something if you had young kids would this be something you would be concerned about them seeing or would you go it's it's a tv show it's okay uh my sons are uh, 10 and 12 uh they're not allowed to watch this um my daughter who's 19 was the one who got me to watch a couple (laughs) of episodes 
she watched the whole series. It's not for me, but I would definitely not uh, let my younger children watch this, uh, certainly not without any kind of adult supervision to explain what's going on. Tony Volk from Brock University, very much appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, and I will say, I, I did not, I had not seen Squid Games until yesterday. I knew we were going to be talking about it today. And I went home yesterday and watched a couple episodes. I haven't seen violence of that level in a long time, let me just say. It, but it is absolutely, it is, it is being heavily watched. Let's put it that way. Whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, everybody is watching it and people will be talking about it. And at least now you know what it is, if you didn't already. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday on the show, we were talking about the BDO affordability index that came out. We were talking about one of the people behind that. Uh, where Canadians were polled on their feelings about where they fit into the economy and their spending and saving and other things related to how they're getting by. And in that, one of the real concerns that was cited was from those 55 and older, because among those, one in three said, and this was their quote, that they are way behind or very far behind in their retirement savings. So I wanted to dive a little further into that this morning because there is further evidence that this is a concern and possibly a problem. According to a study from Ryerson's National Institute of Aging, those in that group, those between 55 and 69, aren't just behind on their retirement savings, apparently. They are very worried about it. 77% in this study say they have serious concerns about how they're going to deal with the costs involved in aging and living after retirement if they retire at all. Dr. Bonnie Jean McDonald is co-author of this report, a Canadian Perspectives on the Financial Realities of Aging in Place. She is an internationally recognized expert on the financial health of Canada's aging population, including options for aging at home and securing lifetime retirement. She joins us now. Doctor, thank you for doing this today. I appreciate it. Good morning. You know, for decades, decades and decades now, retirement was supposed to be the time when you would relax and you would take it easy. It doesn't sound like anybody's being too relaxed about retirement these days. I I think you're absolutely right. I think retirement has changed. The narrative has changed. The environment's changed quite a lot. Um, And because of that, seniors are, I think, beginning to wake up to the fact that retirement is going to look quite different than even for their parents. And that, that's a lot of factors involved there. Of course, we have the pandemic, uh, the volatility of kind of the financial markets, but there's a lot of other things that have been going on and didn't just start last year that's been going on for decades. And that's things like um, people are going into retirement, they're living longer than they ever have before. Uh, and what's also happening is that baby boomers were really the first generation to have relatively few children. So what that's going to mean is that uh, in Canada, even up till today and around the world, you know, children really have been taking care of seniors to help them age at home. And when you have so few children, and oftentimes those children may live in other cities, then that's just not going to be um, feasible anymore. So that's going to be another challenge that's really going to make retirement pricier for seniors. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because so many cultures around the world, anyone who's ever traveled has seen this or knows, there are many cultures that live multi-generationally. And when you get to a certain age, you might move back in with your kids if that option does not exist. And, and I know we don't do that nearly as much here, but I was, I was thinking as I was reading this report that that may be something that we're having to look at down the road. But if we don't have the kids to be able to do this, it's sort of, it's a double whammy. Yeah, it, it's going to be tricky. I mean... 
so that's like you said, families are great for kind of pooling resources. And uh, we see this even with extended families, even today in Canada, like we did uh, a study in 2019. And what we found was even up till today, about 75% of the care that's being done for seniors in Canada is still being done by the family. So in a way, you know, the government's getting basically a 75% off (laughs) on the cost of their long-term care because the family helps so much. But kind of moving forward um, once the baby boomers are in retirement over the next 10 de- uh, over the next decade then that's really going to all shift because they really didn't have those children and as well there's going to be such a large number of them that it, it's really going to put a huge pressure um, on them as well as, as on the, the economy as well I probably should have backed up right from the very beginning and asked you, has this is this something new? This concern, or have people approaching retirement age not always been concerned that they might not have enough? I mean, this doesn't sound to me like this is out of the blue. That previous generations were never worried about what they might have. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because in the past, people number one they they lived shorter times, and in more the recent past, most people had a DB pension plan. Uh, the interest rates were great. Uh, the financial markets were doing great. And for all these reasons, they had more money, they had shorter retirements, and they had less expenses in retirement because they were being kind of supported by their family. But um, what's happening now is is people are getting nearer to retirement. They, they don't quite understand um, the way the long-term care system works. They don't understand that it's actually not a guaranteed service. But also, I think the other big thing that's happening here is that retirement really lasts. 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and humans, you know, none of us were really um, made to think that far in the future, and we're not really uh, biologically made to think about bad financial events happening to us 30 years from now, and how can we protect ourselves? So it's really kind of half human nature, but also half circumstance that people really are not thinking about the far-off future, Um but in a way, that's just the way that uh, that we're made. Now, of course, the pandemic really woke people of up course. to what could happen. Uh, but we're seeing kind of more awareness, but I haven't really seen a lot of action yet. So what you're saying then is, uh, if I'm interpreting right, this isn't necessarily a case of a generation or two of deciding, you know what, I'm making money right now and I want to spend money on myself and I want to live right now and not worry about the future and suddenly everything is now coming home to roost. That's not entirely the case because some factors have changed under their feet. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the other thing to consider is that, you know, people are generally quite adaptable financially. Like if people lose their job, they're able to curb their spending. And this is really a way that we cope when we can work. But once we go into retirement, we don't really have that option to go back to work and make money. And then as you get older and older, these costs become more and more fixed. So because of this, people go into retirement kind of with this uh, experience of being so adaptable. But what it's hard to understand is once you get older, you don't have those options anymore. And this is why planning is so important. You've talked about COVID, you've talked about long-term care. Let me tie those two in here with something because uh, long-term care has become an issue that we've seen recently, as you mentioned. And there are many people now who are talking that they believe governments should create thousands and thousands of long-term care beds to deal with this issue. But we also know we've blown our debts out of the water of all levels of government. And this kind of thing is really, really, really expensive. 
do you think people would be okay if governments were to say, you know, we've got to implement a new tax just for down the road for long-term care beds? Or is that not something you think about until you're close to it? So you people wouldn't be okay with that. Yeah, so it's interesting because people, we have a real problem now because we're so behind the eight ball on this topic that we have seniors in hospitals with no place to go. Um, and therefore, we really do need more nursing home beds because that's where people, some people want to go and need to go. Now, if you actually pull seniors in general, what we find is basically 100% of them say that they plan to age at home for as long as possible. So in reality, really where the money should have gone was to help people to age at home because that's what mm. Canadians want and it's cheaper. So, but still now could be done. Situation, yeah, yeah we're still could be done. It's a disaster situation where we have people who really do need the nursing home 24 hour care uh, and those nursing home beds aren't there and it's, it's creating a lot of um, problems in the hospital system. So, what needs to be done now is basically. Canada is one of the few countries who hasn't really had this kind of national conversation about what our long-term care system is going to look like. It's really just always playing catch-up. So what we're recommending is really provinces to come together, create a unilateral response, and don't just look five years down the road, look 10 years down the road. Yeah, make some plans now. Plan. Just yeah. we got to run, unfortunately. Make some plans now, just like you should be doing yourself with uh, with your retirement. It's it's uh, it's a really difficult issue, but uh, really appreciate the time today, Doctor Bonnie Jean McDonald. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Bye now. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Mashable website, mashable.com, came out with their list the other day of the greatest fictional detectives from TV over the years. I want to bring in Robert Thompson, founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, a man we turn to anytime we're talking TV stuff because he is the best in the business at this. Robert, thanks for doing this this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what is it that makes detectives great fodder for television? Because writers clearly love writing for them. Well, I think TV, I mean, in the uh, beginning especially, TV was all about series that you hoped would go on forever, which means you had to somehow come up with stories that you could mass produce, like automobiles off of a, uh, hmm. uh, a production line, because you had to keep doing it over and over. And uh, back in the, you know, before we got into the 80s and 90s, uh, where TV seasons were like 22 episodes long, or into the new century, where a season is often 8 or 13 episodes long, uh, in the 60s the 50s, they were churning out 39 episodes per year of uh, 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 some of these shows. So all those things that you mentioned, doctors, lawyers, cops, and especially detectives, are built in perfect ways to tell stories that go on forever. You've got a star, it's the detective. And every single uh, week, you have another crime or a murder or whatever, and they go on and solve it. Just like uh, uh, in in literature, long before television, the detective series uh, was perfect for series uh, uh, literature. Agatha Christie and all of the old classic uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, and them. So it's perfect for continuing stories that go on forever. 
sometimes kind of ridiculous. How often is someone going to get killed in Cabot Cove, Maine? <laughs> but sure enough, Jessica Fletcher manages to solve every one of them. See, Jessica Fletcher, funny you bring her up. I am convinced that Jessica Fletcher was actually a serial killer because every small town <laughs> she went to, a murder followed. And eventually you have to say, what's the common denominator? Well, that hypothesis makes a lot more sense than uh, what actually happened on that show week after week after week. It, it just—it almost seems, and I, I don't think that I don't think writing for television is easy to begin with. I've never done it, but it's never struck me as an easy thing. I mean, because you can tell when there's good TV and bad TV, and it's always the writing. But it seems like detectives might be a kind of an easier genre to write for because you can get away with anything. There's no rules. They can beat anybody up and shoot anybody and do anything, and they can do whatever they want. Well, that is true. And of course, if you look at a lot of the detectives, one of the big themes is they're working within the law. They're good guys, but they're always kind of outside the law. They oftentimes, especially TV detectives, uh, if they're not police detectives, they're having trouble with the chief of police who keeps complaining about how they're doing <laughs> stuff right. uh, they shouldn't do. Uh, I remember the Rockford Files. That was one of the great examples of, uh, uh, of that kind of show, where he was this kind of you know living in a trailer with his dad constantly battling with the actual authorities, who, by the way, could never solve the crime. They always, in the end, depended on uh, guys like Rockford to, to do it. So you're right. I think it's easier in that you can keep, you know, every you've got an automatic formula that you can just add new ingredients to. Um, however, I think it's also tough to do it well because... How many, there have been so many, hundreds of thousands of episodes of uh, TV and novels and everything else that have been uh, mysteries, and it's hard to come up with yet another way to get people to really not know who did it or to really come up with a surprising clue. You know what show used to amaze me week after week after week? Remember Columbo? Yep. Back in the, uh, it was at its peak in the 1970s. Uh, that, of course, was an interesting thing because we all knew who the murderer was before the credit even played, uh, before the title put on. We we uh, we knew who uh, uh, who had done it, and then the whole fun of that, and it was sometimes an hour and a half long. It was a long TV show. Uh, it would be him finding all the uh, clues to uh, to finally prove it. And they managed, more often than not, to really come up episode after episode after episode with a new kind of clue that you actually thought, oh, wow, I hadn't seen that before, or I hadn't seen that coming. And I think that's probably very difficult. Robert, we have just a couple seconds here, uh, and I'm catching you, Cole. Who is your favorite? Who's your favorite TV detective of all time? Is well, there one that I comes to mind? Colombo because I think he was my uh, favorite TV detective. But if all detectives, you started with the Pink Panther music, I'm glad you did that because that's where you're going. Better than that. Robert Thompson from the Blyer School of Television. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. That was fun. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.